But if there's anything that we've learned, Hank, from the COVID-19 crisis, it's that human health and the health of the natural world are inextricably linked. When we destroy and consume biodiversity, we hurt ourselves. And that's because we are part of nature. It's sort of like thinking about the island of Hispaniola, which Columbus was fascinated by the variety of its plants and its birds. And today, one half basically has no biodiversity left, that's Haiti. And the other is the Dominican Republic, which has most of it still intact. And that's our choice. Which half of Hispaniola do we want to live in on a world scale? so energized by, I have to say, a few things. One is youth movement, as people taking to the streets and not waiting for permission. They're just going ahead and demanding it. And they're not waiting for governments. They're getting out there and they're making their own change. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas and candid discussions from some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Thomas Lovejoy and Jennifer Morris. Tom is the godfather of biodiversity. For decades, he's been a legendary thought leader and innovator in conservation, serving in a variety of important positions. He currently serves as a senior fellow of the United Nations Foundation where he advises foundation leaders on biodiversity and environmental science. Jennifer is the chief executive officer of the Nature Conservancy, the world's largest conservation NGO, working in 50 states domestically and around the world. She previously served as president of Conservation International, where she oversaw all programs across 29 countries and more than 600 million hectares of protected land. Tom, Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. I've greatly appreciated the opportunity to work with each of you, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Let's start at the beginning. Tom, when did you decide to devote your career to conservation? What motivated you? So in a way, it started when I was 14, and I got an understanding of biodiversity, and I've never been able to get enough of it ever since. So how did you get that? So tell us how you got that understanding. So I had this amazing biology teacher. I had no interest in being a scientist, right? But I had this biology teacher who marched me through the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom. And at the end of that, you understood the variety of life on earth. And I just was totally transfixed. And then did you get out and experience and get out into nature? Is that what transfixed you? So this biology teacher took you out into nature, right? So he did all of that, and I just wanted a life of scientific adventures. And then I realized that biodiversity was in trouble, and I got into conservation. Yeah, well, it's been quite a, quite a story. Now, for those that don't know it, you coined the term biodiversity. How did that happen? How did that term come about? Give us a bit of a history here. Well, it came about because a lot of people were thinking about the diversity of bird species or tree species. And it was really about the variety of life. And there was just no simple way to express it. 
and three of us actually used the phrase in 1980. Nobody thought they were doing something new. Nobody was concerned about who was first. And it was only later that somebody went back and figured out that I had actually been the first. Well, I'll tell you, there's been a lot that's gone on since 1980 in the field, and uh, you've been a real leader. So, Jen, what motivated you to commit your life to conservation? Well, thanks. First, I just want to thank you, Hank, and, and also Wendy for your incredible leadership. And, and thanks again for having Tom and I on today. This is a critical topic for, for our planet and currently in the middle of the COVID crisis is, is extremely essential. We're having this discussion. Um, well, unlike, unlike Tom, my defining moment was actually a little bit later. It wasn't for me until I was in my early 20s and I was actually living in a small village teaching English as a volunteer in northern Namibia, in southern Africa. And, you know, Hank, I'd gone to Namibia after college thinking that I wanted to work in, in public health. But one day really changed the course of my life. As I was working with women who I was teaching in this village, we were collecting firewood and digging boreholes to access water from an aquifer. And later that night, as we were absolutely exhausted, my friend Ria, who was from the village, and I sat down and she started sharing with me pictures of what it was like to be a child in her village. And the pictures that she showed me just blew my mind. They were pictures of a community that was surrounded by beautiful forests. She told me stories about fishing and harvesting fresh corn. But her life as a grown woman was incredibly different. The home that she had now that I was experiencing with her on that day was surrounded by drought-stricken fields. And the communities there, especially the women and the children, were spending most of their days actually collecting water and firewood just to feed their families. And these distances had grown over time due to deforestation. And with these journeys came increased violence, less time at home with their families, fewer hours studying and learning English, and really no chance to find a paying job. So Hank, that night I began to understand the connections between human health, economies, and the health of our local environment. And it was on that day that I decided I didn't want to go into public health, but really wanted to focus on some of the drivers of human health, and that was the health of nature, and increasingly the evaluation, the importance of valuing nature in terms of what it provides for humans. Well, that's, that's really quite a fascinating story. And as we will explore later on, I think it really has helped you with some of the projects and initiatives you've driven throughout your career. Now, let's go to today's enormous challenges. Tom, please give our listeners an overview of the extent to which our biodiversity is in decline because it's dramatic. And here I'm talking about birds, mammals, fish, plants, insects. What's happening and what does this mean for our planet and for mankind? So the, the combined impacts of human activity on the natural diversity of our planet is of such a scale that we're seeing most of the animal biomass today, the sheer weight on this planet, is in our domestic animals and in people. We've lost 3 billion birds in North America, and one can keep throwing off statistics like that. But the official UN estimate is if we don't change our direction, we could easily lose a million species. 
and that would be like one out of every eight or one out of every 10 species on Earth. And it would be a pretty degraded landscape and seascape and a really impoverished existence for people. So that's our choice. It's sort of like thinking about the island of Hispaniola, which Columbus was fascinated by the variety of its plants and its birds. And today, one half basically has no biodiversity left. That's Haiti. And the other is the Dominican Republic, which has most of it still intact. And that's our choice. Which half of Hispaniola do we want to live in on a world scale? That really says it. Let's drill down just a bit more. So talk about pollinators. What's happening with bees? You read a lot about that. So I remember when I was a kid that you drive at night and your windshield would be splattered with bugs, like that canoe trip we took in the Amazon where we had to turn our lights off. Yeah, uh, and truck drivers, literally truck drivers, were the first to notice that this kind of thing wasn't happening anymore. So it's, it's a complex picture, and some places are much worse than others. But there is a serious decline of pollinators across the planet. And what does that mean, uh, other than the loss of some interesting organisms? Well, you know, in the state of New York, the pollination of fruit trees every year is like three trillion pollinations, right? Think of trying to substitute what the insects do for us by having people run around with little paintbrushes, and you'll realize there's nothing, you know, to be done that way. Yeah, this is, it's hard to get your mind around what is happening and what is happening so quickly. I remember as a kid reading stories about what had happened to the ivory-billed woodpecker and the Carolina parakeet or the dodo bird and just being really struck by that. And of course, this is just happening hundreds of thousands of times over right now all around us. Now, I'm gonna switch to Jen. Jen, you know, as we talk about the destruction of our global ecosystem, you know, the forests, grasslands, wetlands, oceans, this is coming, as Tom said, from human activity as our population is growing rapidly, particularly in areas that are rich in biodiversity. So as you started off saying, you focused your career on the need to create economic opportunities for impoverished populations, including indigenous people, which is important if we are to protect and preserve natural capital. So tell us about this dynamic between people and nature and how it affects our ability to achieve lasting conservation goals. Yeah, so this is a critical point. So often people are looking at human well-being and nature conservation as a zero-sum game, right? We protect one at the expense of another. But if there's anything that we've learned, Hank, from the COVID-19 crisis, it's that human health and the health of the natural world are inextricably linked. When we destroy and consume biodiversity, we hurt ourselves. And that's because we are part of nature. Now, the work that Tom and I do every day is the behavior change business. How do we change human behavior? To be successful in what we do, we have to convince communities, businesses, governments, that how and what we eat, that what we grow, how we produce energy, it all comes from and impacts nature. 
And quite frankly, nature has been giving us a free lunch for thousands of years. And we have stressed her oceans, her water, and her soils. And, you know, honestly, our community, we haven't done a great job of convincing people about the value of nature, of our planet's natural capital. Hank, you mentioned indigenous people. Most indigenous people, they know the value of nature and they're waiting for us, humans that are often disconnected from nature to actually see it and to value it. Indigenous people from Canada, Australia, steward 25% of the planet's land and they are guardians of 17% of nature's storehouses of forest carbon. And this not only helps them, but helps all of us to stabilize the planet's climate. And these communities, they receive very little resources to enforce their land title. You think about what's happening in Brazil, you see that playing out right now. But as us that are nature disconnected, if you will, we often fail to see the intrinsic value and to instinctively understand the value of nature like indigenous people. And instead we need incentives and market signals and political and societal pressure to create that change. So at the end of the day, we need to move away from talking about people and nature as competing priorities. And remember that we as humans are part of that natural world. For us to thrive, nature has to thrive and nature needs us to step up and do more. Yep, and, and so much of your work and Tom's work and some other conservationists' work are working to not just protect the uh, natural areas, but to create economic opportunities for those that live in and around these natural areas, because poverty is also an enemy of conservation. So it's, a, it, it's really an interesting dynamic. I, I'd like to now move back to Tom and talk about the tropics because they're a home to a disproportionate share of our biodiversity. And this is where Tom has done so much of his research. You know, I've, with my wife, Wendy, we visited natural areas, spectacular areas all around the world for many years. But perhaps the most informative trip I've taken was with Tom to visit Tom, your research station, uh, you know, in the Amazon, Camp 41. And today we hear a lot about the rapid deforestation and destruction of the Amazon. But I think many people don't really understand why the Amazon basin is important to them. How does it fit into the global ecosystem and how should we think about it? And what is its relevance to climate change? Now I can tell you, as someone who's been there, it's just incredible to see the diversity and you talked about turning on the lights and just being mobbed by insects. And to me, just the plants, the flora, the fauna, the diversity, the reptiles, it's just fascinating. But I want to talk about it in terms of what's happening to the Amazon and what does this mean to the global ecosystem, not just the people who live there where it will be devastating, but what does it mean to the world? So most people think of the Amazon as some sort of mysterious place. They don't realize how big it is. It's actually equivalent to the 48 contiguous U.S. states. It just looks small on the Mercator projection. And when I first set foot in it, it was about 3% deforested. Today, it's probably around 20% deforested. And you would think that, well, that's not a problem. You know, you got 80% left. I mean, ignoring that the species in the deforested places might have lived only there and are therefore gone forever, but there's a 
just a fascinating bit of science that was done in the mid-70s when a Brazilian scientist named Anaya Salati looked at oxygen isotope ratios in rainwater from the Atlantic to the Peruvian border and demonstrated unequivocally that the Amazon makes half of its own rainfall. It shattered the global paradigm, which was that vegetation is simply the consequence of climate has no influence on it whatsoever. Well, that lay in smithereens. And in that discovery was the question how much deforestation would lower the recycling of that moisture as the air moves from east to west so that there would be places where there's not enough rain for a rainforest. And we actually, we saw the, the plumes of moisture coming up out of the canopy of the forest after a rainstorm. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And it's actually part of a global continental climate system. So every country in South America except Chile benefits from that. So that's the big hydrological cycle story. But there is so much carbon in tropical rainforests and in the Amazon that it would be a climate change nightmare if that all got released to the atmosphere. It would be about 80 billion tons of carbon. And of course, there's all the biological diversity. And everybody sort of thinks that, well, maybe the rainforest is the same from one end of the Amazon to the other, but no, it isn't. It's different species live in different parts of the Amazon. Some of the fish species actually migrate from the estuary to the headwaters and back. So in the end, you have to recognize the Amazon has to be managed as a system for itself, for what it means for climate, for what it means for biodiversity, and what it means for human welfare. Tom, you know, you say it all so well and so succinctly. One point I want to make is with the work on mitigating climate change, there's this huge emphasis on trees, planting trees, preventing deforestation, of course, which is something which is very, very important. But there are all these programs to plant billions of trees. But when you really look at it, a lot of them, they're planting the wrong trees in the wrong places, and they really don't make much of a difference. But in the tropics, that's where deforestation really is the most harmful and where there's the most potential if we're going to work on reforestation. Could you just say a word about that before I move on? Yeah, so the, the important thing here is not just to plant a bunch of trees all of the same kind, say eucalyptus trees, and then cut them all down and turn them into paper pulp. That would have solved nothing in the end. What you really need is to get the natural forest to regrow. In some places that's easier to do and others harder. But the great thing when you do that, it becomes part of that system that I was referring to earlier. And it sequesters a lot of carbon and protects a lot of biological diversity. So it's good for the forest, it's good for the climate, and it's good for people. Great. So... Can I jump in on that? that yeah, you okay? sure can, Jen. Yeah, no, I, I'd like just to mention a couple of things about the importance of restoration and, and completely agree with Tom's point about the need to restore natural forests. And it's much more cost effective as well to do that. There's a lot of interesting techniques on in how to do that. But one point that I think a lot of these tree planting programs you hear about 
drones and all sorts of you know technological advances and that can be good but at the end of the day we have to involve local communities in doing the ecosystem restoration whether it's tree planting or using natural methods because if communities aren't embracing what's happening to their environment they're not going to protect it in the long run so i've seen lots of these projects fail because people come from the outside and say, plant this tree here and build this nursery without really understanding the community dynamics. So that's a really important part. Plus, it really adds to the economic well-being of the, the people, which is so important. Exactly. So Jen, let's get back to the intersection of man and nature. If we're going to continue to take millions of people out of poverty, there is no doubt that infrastructure is needed and even though some people don't believe it's needed, it's going to be built. So we're going to have hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure built in environmentally sensitive parts of Latin America, Asia, and Africa in the decades ahead. And here we're talking about not just roads and bridges and railroads, but dams. And so, and, you know, most environmentalists, you know, We've never seen a dam we like. We've never seen a road we like. We've never seen a mine we like, right? But some are a lot better than others. And so how, where, and what type of infrastructure is built will determine our ability to preserve our most critical ecosystems. Now, the Nature Conservancy has been a real leader here. Tell us about TNC, what they're doing, and how you go about thinking about smart infrastructure and what you see as a path forward here in terms of building the infrastructure that's gonna be built, much of which is gonna be needed, and to do it in a way where there's as little impact on the ecosystem as possible. Yeah, no, you're so right. So I think traditionally a lot of conservationists have just completely opposed large-scale infrastructure projects just on principle. But, you know, the Nature Conservancy, as well as a lot of other organizations, believe firmly that in order to make the low-carbon shift that we need to make to achieve our Paris climate goals, we're going to have to have not a stopping of infrastructure, but an overhaul of how we do infrastructure. I mean, we're looking at needing between five and six trillion dollars per year in infrastructure improvements to meet the sustainable development goals. So we have to have infrastructure. So conservationists can't ignore this, but it's not a question, again, of whether to build it, but it's how to build it. And if it's done right, smart infrastructure can create incredibly new investment opportunities at a time when we absolutely need economic recovery, infrastructure, and jobs, quite frankly. So we should be excited as a community about embracing these opportunities and not be fearful. The Nature Conservancy, as well as a lot of other organizations, including development banks, employ something called the mitigation hierarchy for infrastructure, which basically means avoiding specific areas to never, ever, ever build in, such as critical habitats for carbon, for indigenous communities, national parks. There are certain places that should just be absolutely off limits. When you do build, whether it's a road or a dam, a plant, et cetera, you need to minimize the impact on the surrounding environment. So you avoid, you minimize, and then what you can't minimize, and those should be limited things, you can create some offsets. Now, this is controversial, of course, but we firmly believe that a lot of companies aren't even doing creation of the offsets. We believe firmly that in some cases, you're gonna to need to create some offsets when there's impacts. Um, this is something that the World Bank requires for funding from their institution, as well as a lot of other global development banks. 
And of course, the UN Convention on Biological Diversity has also called on all governments to use the same framework for infrastructure development. Also, the critical thing too, Hank, is that we have to have spatial planning at a systems level before we just embark on these big projects. I'll give you one example from the Nature Conservancy. Given that there's a huge demand for solar energy in the U.S. Southwest, we work together with the Bureau of Land Management in the Mojave Desert to map out critical habitats that absolutely should be avoided because they had high important levels of biodiversity, but also looked at places where it was okay to build utility scale solar power. And together we looked and said, these are no-go areas and these are yes areas. And doing that holistically at the beginning of a project meant the project could go through faster and it was actually a lot less expensive. The Inter-American Development Bank is doing the same type of approach in their portfolio in Latin America. So that upfront planning is really critical to avoid some of the most socially and environmentally controversial sites and doing it that way reduces lawsuits and delays and costs. So the bottom line is smart planning is really good for the environment and good for the bottom line for the infrastructure that we absolutely need, especially in a post-COVID recovery. For sure. Hey, Jenna, I'd like you to just explain one thing for people that might not be as familiar with it. Describe an offset. What kinds of mitigation projects might come out of a infrastructure program? Sure. So there are many situations where if you cannot, again, avoid certain impacts on a natural system, there is an international framework for creating a benefit in another place if you have to create harm if you have to do some harm in, uh, let's say for example, with the creation of a dam. So if you're impacting an ecosystem where a dam has to go, you absolutely have to build a dam in this place, then there are opportunities for restoring an ecosystem, ideally an equal type of ecosystem in another place. So that would be in that particular case, a biodiversity offset. So that's generally how it works. Yeah, I remember, This is not quite an offset, but I remember years ago working with the Nature Conservancy in the Yunnan province of China on the Yangtze River, and where the Chinese government had decided to build a number of dams, which were going to do big damage to the ecosystem. But rather than just fighting this, the Nature Conservancy got involved and worked with them on how to build fewer dams and how to build them in spots where they didn't do as much harm. And it made a big difference. Now, to finish here, I would like to finish on a high note. So all three of us have to be optimists or we wouldn't be energetically working to promote conservation in the US and around the world. But you know, there's there's a lot going on that's not good, but there's plenty that is going on that's good. So, So Jen, You meet with people all over the world. You've got a big group of young professionals at TNC. What energizes you about today's opportunities? So I am so energized by, I have to say a few things. One is youth movement. As people taking to the streets and not waiting for permission, they're just going ahead and demanding it. And they're not waiting for governments, they're getting out there and they're making their own change. We're also seeing, in addition to sort of a large popular movement amongst the youth, we're also seeing companies that aren't waiting for national policy frameworks. They're stepping up and saying, we recognize there's a problem with our planet's trajectory. Companies like Apple 
that have committed to carbon neutrality just recently across their entire business by 2030, which is very aggressive for, for a company like Apple or like Morgan Stanley, which will become the first major American bank to disclose climate impacts from their loans and investments. Or Microsoft, who's working with the Nature Conservancy using artificial intelligence and big data to identify and map some of the most important areas on the planet to protect. So they're not waiting for regulators. They're not waiting for permission. They're just transforming now and they're stepping up and they're stepping out. And that is very important. The other thing I'd say that gives me hope and optimism, Hank, is that people are starting to recognize these connections, those connections that I first saw in Namibia so many years ago between conserving nature and human and economic health. I mean, just recently, the, the World Health Organization published a manifesto for green and just recovery that had the number one recommendation for preventing another pandemic was protecting and preserving nature. So that gives me hope that we're actually looking across disciplines now. And that an organization like the World Health Organization, not an environmental organization, would recognize those connections between environment and human health. So that for me gives, me gives me a lot of hope that we're moving in the right direction. But quite frankly, the urgency has never been clearer and we have to move faster together. And, and we're gonna have to see people become more politically active because so much of the harm stems from counterproductive uh, government policies and incentives, exactly. you know, which, which are doing the exact opposite of what we should be doing. So Tom, give our listeners some good news. Where are there bright spots in conservation? Where are you hopeful that we will see some progress? So actually there are a lot of bright spots in conservation. Some are small and local. Some would be a surprising infrastructure project like the Imigrantes Highway in the Atlantic forest to Brazil, which is an elevated highway to prevent the impact on the forest. So it's actual physical impact on the forest is like two and a half percent of a normal highway and you don't have spontaneous colonization. So when you see people rethinking what they otherwise would have done in a destructive way and finding ways to do it that are compatible with the environment and a future for biodiversity, it really is a sign of, of great progress. And, you know, going back to our favorite Amazon, you know, when I started, there was one national park and one demarcated indigenous reserve in the entire Amazon. Today, more than 50% is protected by demarcated indigenous reserves or traditional conservation areas. And there will be more. And that's just perfectly astounding, done in just 20 to 30 years. And the news is full of the bad news about conservation. Uh, it overlooks a lot of these good news stories. And we need the good news because we, we know so much more today than we knew 20 or 30 years ago. So much more. So if we have the will, there's a lot we can get done. So a big thank you to each of you for being with us today and for all you do to protect the environment because it needs all the help it can get. Thank you. Thank you. Fun to be with you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk 
or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.